Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, and so it means it's Bible study day. Today is the last day of our study for 2020. Uh, we are going to be back on January 6th, but we're taking a couple weeks off for new Christmas and New Year's. And so I'm glad you're here with me today to end with chapter five before we get on with chapter six in 2021. So a few housekeeping notes. If you visit our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study, then you can get the new spring bookmark. It's our new spring bookmark that has the schedule on it that begins January 6th and goes through the first Wednesday of May. I don't remember the date. Um, and we will finish all of Revelation between January and that first Wednesday in May. And those are available now on our website, stmichael.org RBS. And while you are there, if you don't already receive our Monday email reminders about class, then please sign up for those emails, send a note, to Meredith Rose, who can add you to our email list, and we will get you and keep you connected. So today, we go into chapter 5 of Revelation, and chapter 5 is potentially the most important Christian theological chapter, single chapter, in any of the books outside the Gospels. And we may even argue, when it comes to Christian theological identity, there is something so pivotal right here in chapter 5 that it could even be as important as some of the stories that we find in the Gospels. So this is a good day to be in Bible study. Quick note that we want you to engage in what we are doing. And so if you're on one of our social media platforms, Facebook or YouTube, then please say hello. Let us know that you are here. If you are new, introduce yourself so that people can welcome you to this group. And as always, I would love to hear your thoughts and your comments as we go forward in this study because it helps me with the direction of the study so we can make this as valuable and as helpful as possible for everyone who is watching live with us today. And if you're watching on demand, then most certainly put your comments and questions in the fields because we will check those throughout the week, I guess throughout the three weeks that we're off, and make sure that we collect those questions to get back together in January 6th. So let's start with a prayer and we will jump in. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the beauty of this day and for this holy season of Advent. As we approach the final week of Advent, we ask that you keep us open to your spirit, keep us open to be inspired by your love, that as we prepare to celebrate once again, the birth of your son, the birth of hope in our world, that we can be transformed to be the people you created us to be and to show your love most purely in the world. Be with all of our friends today who cannot join us, especially those we know and those strangers who are sick, those who may be near death, those we love and see no longer. May our memory of them May our care for those who are with us be as best as it can be, and that we trust in you. All this we ask in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's jump in to chapter 5. Chapter 5 is going to address a few questions um, that I received this past week. Well, you know what? Let's do one question really quickly before we get into chapter five. Um, I received five different versions of this same question after last week's study. Um, some, really all of the phrasings of these questions were eloquent, they were elegant, they were thoughtful, they were very deep, but they all kind of landed in the same place. And that same place is, how do we know that this is true. And if we say it's true, how true is it? How can we trust this story? And there are many facets to this. Um, everyone kind of turned that crystal in their own way. And so without getting into the very specific single questions that I received, I thought it would be important for us to address the general idea of truth here in Revelation. Now, you all have heard me, if you've been with me any length of time, you've heard me make, make the distinction between something that is true and something that is historic. We talked a lot about this last year when we studied Genesis, that much of Genesis, especially in the beginning, those stories are true, but I don't believe that those stories are historic. 
And part of what we have to challenge ourselves to do as faithful disciples and as biblical scholars is to try and uncouple this idea that the only thing that can be true is what is, what I really want to say perhaps is, I should have thought through this a bit more. There are ideas in our world, there are things in our world that are true. And I know I've used before the idea of love or joy or sadness. These are not tangible, and yet they are true. There is a difference between truth and fact, so I do want to note that. Um, Facts are historic, right? I am in my office right now. That's a fact. It is also true, but facts are not, truths are not also facts. It's what, it's like Venn diagram kind of things. Um, Facts are always historic. It is demonstrably true. But there are bigger truths that we cannot demonstrate or prove or touch. And that's the kind of truth that I find in some of the stories, say at the very beginning of Genesis, and also in this vision that John has while he's on the island of Patmos. It is a true vision. I don't believe John went somewhere, and I don't actually think John is intending for us to understand his vision as some kind of tangible experience, but more so a deep, profound truth that can help inform us that can help form us in our own discipleship. That's a hard idea. And so I don't want you to just toss it away. I want you to kind of wrestle with this because the Bible is, if we think the Bible is factually, tangibly, historically accurate every step of the way, there are some obvious moments where the Bible contradicts itself. And so we can (laughs) We can say things like, well, we just don't understand what the Bible is saying or the like. Um, that's, That's a little shallow. And so instead, I want to invite you into this, what I think is a deeper, more profound reality of faith where the truth goes beyond just something factual and tangible. The truth is something bigger. And that's really what John has received and has passed on to us, is this bigger, deeper truth. And I think the Bible is so much better when we read it that way than when we read it as just kind of a collection of historical facts. Okay, if you happen to hear grinding or drilling or other kinds of noise, um, we are replacing a gas, one of our gas lines here at the church, and it is literally right outside the windows of my office. So you might have a soundtrack today to Bible study that is unusual. Um, Just ignore it. So this kind of truth is important to note when we consider John's revelation because there are certainly some, (laughs) you know, when I read these questions that people were asking this week about truth, I thought it's such an Episcopalian way to approach this. People said things like, you know, what if perhaps he was hallucinating? What if he had some kind of Um, debilitatory condition um, that began to overwhelm his thinking or his perception? What if he ate food that was some kind of natural psychedelic? What if he, and on and on and on. And I think those are all totally valid. Why not ask those questions? Those are great questions. What I would want us to do though, is to almost put that aside and to say, how this happened is so much less important, not that it's not important, but it's way less important than actually taking these stories and digging into them like poetry. It's really just poetry. And parsing it out and picking it apart and cracking it open and really getting at something that is amazing about God and our relationship with God. And as I noted at the very beginning, chapter five is rich with that kind of relational identity between us and God. And so I don't want the, our natural intellectual curiosity to get in the way of discovering something profoundly theologically true. So there it is. Um, and we'll pick that apart a little bit more as we go today. But let's go ahead and jump in to chapter five directly. 
very important chapter that is going to be divided into two parts today. The first part is the lion and the lamb, and the second part is the songs or art is songs of praise. So first part, lion and lamb, we're going to look at the first section through verse seven. It's going to literally divide in half. First ver seven verses, second seven verses. So let's take a look at the first four verses of chapter five together. Got your Bibles? Let's go. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So we'll pause there. Let's set the stage. We are still in the throne room, all right? So at the end of chapter four, John has been taken into the throne room in some way. He is seeing the throne room. We saw the four beasts and we saw the 24 elders and their thrones and their crowns and all that good stuff. John is still in the throne room. What John is seeing now is a very interesting thing to see. Many of us, I think, kind of, you know, not accidentally or absent-minded or subconsciously or whatever you want to say, almost consider heaven to be this fixed, perfect place. And what John is seeing is that heaven is dynamic. There is a dynamism in God's actions in this heavenly throne. God is not static. God is not done. The work is not finished. And John is seeing that work happen right in front of him. So what really begins with the beasts and the praising in chapter 4 continues with this identification of a scroll. And what John begins to see is the great rescue mission. Effectively, what we have in our Bible, the entire Bible, if we look beginning to end, the great arc of salvation is really one big divine rescue mission. This rescuing of humanity is a rescuing from evil so that we can fulfill our good, that we can be made whole, that we anything broken can be healed. That's really the whole arc of our salvation story, the entire arc of the Bible itself. And this great cosmic res rescue mission is really articulated right there with the mighty angel who says to everyone in the room, this big challenge, the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? As the angel says this in the room, John looks around and he's looking around and no one seems able to do it. Here we have God holding this scroll, beginning this rescue mission, and nobody can help. So let's stop for a second and say, what really is the deal with the scroll and these seven seals? In this tableau, in this great poem, this scroll represents God's rescue plan. In a sense, God is at a point in his salvation arc where God knows what needs to happen. He's got a plan. And he needs somebody who can execute this plan. And now you may ask, why? God is, of course, God. If God wants to do a thing, God can just go do a thing. But remember what I said last week? God doesn't just go about willy-nilly doing or not doing whatever he wants without any intervention. The entire idea of our faith is based in one very necessary idea. We are loved and we are called to reciprocate that love. God acts and we are called to act with God. God has set up a world where he's not just going about doing things. There is a bilateral action of good in the world where God meets us and we covenant in order to love and bring about love and light and hope and joy in the world. That invitation 
is made fully and completely in the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. That's the idea. That's the big salvation story. Now, let's put this into context because it's important for us to understand that the big scope of salvation has had a few phases. We can argue that it's three phase, maybe four, depending. It's kind of like there's a part one and part two of the second. So phase one, God creates something wonderful. This is what we looked at in Genesis, right? God creates the world. It is wonderful and it is perfect and everything works and humanity fails to keep up their end of the bargain. The way that we receive the creation story is that God created this perfect place for us and asked us to take care of creation along with him. We failed. We failed to trust. We failed to love. We failed to do what God made us to do. So then, part one, over. Part two could be divided into like, you know, A and B. God remakes creation with faith in one person. God renewed this covenantal idea with Noah. That didn't work like God hoped. And so the next time God remakes this promise, renews this covenant with a group of people, Israel, the Jewish people, the chosen people. So humanity fails at the beginning. Then God renews the covenant with a person, a single person, That doesn't work. So God renews the covenant with a group of people. That ultimately doesn't work. And so God incarnates into humanity in order to show humanity the way, in order to open the door and really kind of compel humanity to follow through the doorway. This is a complex idea, but it's where we get the fundamental truth of incarnation so that it's not simply God doing without our engagement, but the real purpose here is that in this divine and human combination, the Messiah and God together make it possible for all of us to arrive at the perfect union and wholeness and salvation that God wants for us. We are saved into this heavenly reality. We see this when we see that the Messiah has won the victory. We're going to see that. So let's go back to Revelation. So John is there in the throne room, and John sees the angel say, or hears the angel say, Can anyone open this scroll? Is anyone worthy to open this scroll? And John feels the weight of that moment because he knows he's not worthy. And as he looks around, he sees no one else speaking up and he begins to weep bitterly. But then, let's continue with verse five. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And we'll stop there. The problem that John sees with this scroll is that humanity is deeply and profoundly flawed. The reason he weeps in this silent moment is because he knows he, and apparently the rest of creation, cannot respond to God the way that God wishes. But an elder almost kind of leans in and whispers to John, hey, just wait, see, there, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is a big moment, right? John is there weeping on behalf of humanity. And this elder from the kingdom says, just wait, look over there. You see that lion from the root of David? And we should have all of the little bells jingling in our minds 
lion of the tribe of Judah, root of David. This is all messianic prophecy. This is rooted all the way back in the Old Testament prophetic tradition. People like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and more, they spoke of a Messiah who would be the lion of Judah, who would come from the house of David, that root of David, and be the one to save us all. This messianic identity is wrapped up right here. And when John looks, what he sees is a lamb. Now this could be confusing (laughs) because we obviously heard the elder say, see, there's the lion. And John looks and he sees the lamb. This idea of the lion and the lamb is so critical to the theology of Christianity that I want to unpack it for a few minutes. So we often like to understand Christ, the Messiah, even God's identity as being either or, lion or lamb. But what we see here is that John has heard the announcement of the lion, but John has seen the lamb. The lamb looks like it had been slaughtered. John has to hold the truth of what he's heard and what he sees. He's got to hold that truth together, even though they seem radically different. You've got this lion, a symbol of ultimate power, supreme royalty, while the lamb is this gentle, vulnerable little bit that is meant to be sacrificed on our behalf. It's sort of ultimate weakness, strength and weakness, except a careful look at what John is doing here, a theological idea that has underpinned Christianity for 2,000 years, is the mysterious relationship of the two identities of lion and lamb. We are meant to accomplish the salvation act with God by holding these two ideas in tension. The victory is won by God with these two ideas coming together and meeting. Now, it's hard for me to explain this any better than what N.T. Wright did in the commentary. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read two short paragraphs from our commentary because I think he just nailed it and it's going to be better than whatever I would say to you. So hold this idea of the lion and the lamb together and listen to what N.T. Wright says. There have been down the years plenty of lion Christians. Yes, they think, Jesus died for us, but now God's will is to be done in the lion-like fashion through brute force and violence to make the world come into line to enforce God's will. No, replies John, think of the lion, yes, but gaze at the lamb. And there have been plenty of lamb Christians. Yes, they think Jesus may have been the lion of Judah, But that's a political idea, which we should reject because salvation consists in having our sins wiped away so that we can get out of this compromised world and go off to heaven instead. No, replies John, gaze at the lamb, but remember that it is the lion's victory that he has won. In those two paragraphs, Wright articulates what is perhaps the absolute crux disagreement in Christianity today and effectively throughout all of history. In Christ, we see this powerful victory over death itself, over all evil. And yet, this powerful, defining victory is accomplished through the complete sacrifice of handing over to the powers of the world everything. It is this mysterious combination of the strength of the victory through an action that is absolutely as physically weak as it can be, where we get this incredible gift of salvation. 
And typically, when Christians disagree about how to function, how to act, how to be in the world, it can be stripped down to some version of the lion and the lamb. People are identifying their identity a little too much with one or the other. And it's always our necessity to try and strike a balance that is impossible to strike perfectly, but is necessary for us to try. And therein ends this very first section of chapter 5 of Revelation. So, I want to encourage you to ask some questions, make some comments. This is This is as big an idea, a theological idea, as it gets. This is, perhaps, one of the most critical moments in the development of Christian theology because this is what gives rise to what we might identify as ultimate dogma and doctrine regarding what Jesus even did on earth. So, before I get questions because I haven't seen any come through yet. Um, An idea to consider. Jesus of Nazareth, real person, living in the real world, teaching, miracles, sacrifice, crucifixion, resurrection, okay? Real person. What happened afterwards is that good, faithful people, disciples and more, tried to figure out what, in fact, just happened. Like, what really just happened with this guy, Jesus? And at first, they say, you know, well, he's obviously a, a good teacher, right? A good rabbi, someone who has has embodied the Spirit of God as we know, but that doesn't quite seem to catch it all because they knew deep down that Jesus was more than a prophet, okay? Jesus is more than a teacher, okay? So is Jesus just God? Well, no, not just God, but obviously there's God in there somewhere, and so is Jesus Moses? Well, not really. Moses died. Jesus died and was resurrected. And so there was a deep level of confusion and disagreement and uncertainty around what it meant to actually understand what happened. As the first century Christians were trying to wrestle with these big ideas, John's revelation comes through and gives this incredible vision of what God is actually trying to do on earth. And people said, aha, this is how we can understand Jesus. This idea, this vision of what God is really trying to do in the world in that saving effort is really how we can understand Jesus and what Jesus did. In this moment of lion-lamb discussion, identity, we actually see a pretty incredible way of finally understanding Jesus in a way that, you know, I want to say makes sense, not necessarily, but at least seems real and true and consistent with what Jesus actually did in the Gospels. And so, over the next 100, 200 years, this Revelation story provides the legs that undergirds the experience that real people had with the real person, Jesus, and connects it to this massive, cosmic salvation experience that people are having with the Spirit, right? It it gets at this idea of something that is true but not tangible. People are doing stuff, right? People are sacrificing their lives for this thing that they believe in. They're seeing healings happen all around them. They're catching visions. They're witnessing miracles. What do they do with this? And John's revelation finally gives them some hook to grab onto. 
Okay, I see a quick question. One second. Um, Oh, Sally says, um, seems like a sentiment I've heard from certain types of Christians is I don't want to worship a Jesus I could beat up. <laughs> is wishing for the lion only, not a slaughtered lamb. That's funny. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I have often said that I don't care for buddy Jesus or like friendly Jesus or warm hug Jesus or, you know, whatever. I like Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the one who is strong. And in a sense, I kind of like the lion Jesus. But we always have to hold that intention with how that strength was expressed. Because Jesus sacrificed his life, gave up his own body, means that his strength to me, was so much bigger than what our worldly definition of strength really is. That his love for us was so strong that he could give up everything that we think or that the world teaches us is valuable in order to show that strength. And so in a sense, although the lion definitely looks like strength in our world, the gift of the lamb is perhaps the very truest expression of strength. So strength, weakness, no. But it is strength in different forms that come together. And I think we can all lean a little bit farther away from our comfort zone if we tend to like the lion lean a little bit more into the lamb. And if we tend to like the lamb, lean a little bit more into the lion, knowing we'll never get it right, knowing we'll disagree on how much to lean in which direction, but that it's that attempt, it's that struggle, it's that try that God wants from us. All right, keep asking questions, making comments. I love them. We are now moving into the second half of chapter five. As we move into the second half of chapter five, we are receiving three different songs of praise. And each of those songs of praise harken back to moments in prophetic voices and visions that have happened before. Whether that's the prophets, people like Daniel, these songs of praise echo what has been done for hundreds of years within the Jewish tradition. Because the, the very important idea that we should never lose is that Jesus did not just plop down on the earth without any context, right? Jesus was Jewish. Jesus comes fully out of this Jewish tradition. Jesus as a rabbi is helping to complete and fulfill the prophetic ideas that undergirds Judaism. And so to that end, when John has this revelation, writes these songs of praise, the words, the language, the phrasing comes straight out of that Jewish tradition. And most people who are reading these letters would absolutely know or hear the echoes of that Jewish identity in the way that John writes these letters. So let's look at these songs of praise one by one. Let's start with verse 8. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Now this first song of praise for the Lamb is for what the Lamb has done. So the main idea here is the first song acknowledges that the lamb is worthy to take the scroll, that what the lamb has done allows the lamb to be worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. So really the lamb is God's saving agent. The lamb is like the secret agent of God that is fulfilling what God's creation was meant to be all along. 
And so the lamb represents this partnership between creation and God. So God is not acting unilaterally. God is not simply waving his hand and doing whatever he wants. Instead, the lamb comes out of the creation and is found worthy to break the seals, open the scroll, and then on behalf of the whole creation, the lamb has brought us all into this unity with God. This song explains the way in which the lamb accomplished God's saving work. Read it again. You were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the lamb is not working on behalf of a few or behalf of some special people. The lamb is working on behalf of every person. And we can even make that bigger. The lamb is working on behalf of the entire creation. All of us, everything we see, the lamb is working for us all. This messianic idea is a confluence of all of these different biblical storylines. You get some of the prophetic words like we see in Daniel. If you go back and read chapter 7 of Daniel, you're going to see a real marriage of some ideas here. And back in chapter 7 of Daniel, which, you know, it's not been that long since we did that, it's after the beasts and the conquering of the beasts. And then this song of praise comes in chapter 7 that sounds very similar to what John has written here as this first song of praise. But in addition, you get this idea of the lamb being slaughtered and that the blood saves us. And it is quite literally hearkening back to the lamb's blood that saved God's chosen people in Egypt. So there are echoes with almost every single phrase to something that the people reading this letter would have known. They would be reading these songs of praise and ping, 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 ping. All of these fulfillment ideas are happening at the same time. So John is connecting these dots very, very quickly. And people who are reading this are having all of their little pistons fire so that they begin to understand the truth, the profound truth that John is revealing to them. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Here we see in this second song of praise, a phrase that resonates today in songs that are both sacred and traditional and popular and contemporary, worthy is the lamb, right? We, this is where that phrase comes from. We can probably all, in a, just right now, sing some version of some song that uses the phrase, worthy is the lamb. It comes from right here in Revelation chapter 5. And it is that super important rootedness of Christian identity. The lamb is worthy when we are not. We cannot crack the seals and read the scroll, but the lamb can and the lamb does on our behalf. The lamb is the one who is worthy and it is the lamb's worthiness that makes us worthy too. The lamb has provided the access, the bridge, the doorway through which we can walk and become worthy as well. It's, it's powerful stuff. Let's look at the last song of praise. Verse 13, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This praise continues in the third song and it shifts. It gets bigger. The first two songs are directed at what the lamb did and why the lamb is worthy. And now in this third song, the praise expands. It's not just the lamb anymore, but it's God sitting on the throne. So together, what God and the lamb have done on behalf of us all compels us to praise, compels us to give blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We, because of this complete, total outpouring of love, because God's love and the, the lamb as this messianic bridge 
has shown us its totality, we can't help but respond with praise. This is John's own way of kind of glimpsing and communicating the mind-numbing truth that Jesus is this lion lamb. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. Jesus is the one we worship because Jesus is the one uniquely who has brought us to unity with God, the creator. Ha. <sighs> okay, so we got there. I wanted to leave a little time at the end. And, and again, questions, comments, I like them, so make them. Um, and I know I talk a little fast, so you may need a, <laughs> I have always wondered I should wait a beat. You know what, hold on, I'm gonna drink some coffee and maybe you have a question or a comment. Let's keep going. I can only wait for so long. There is a critical idea here, and I wanted to leave a little time at the end of this class to talk about the idea of worth. What we see in chapter five is language over and over again about who is worthy. Worth is a powerful idea. Being worthy is, is an idea worth wrestling with. Let's talk about what it means to be worthy. Can you imagine if someone handed you a gift, a great gift, and you knew it was a great gift, but rather than it being addressed to you, like your actual name being on it, it was addressed to whomever was worthy of this great gift. So in other words, here's this amazing thing and you know it's amazing and you really want it, but it's actually addressed to someone worthy to receive it. Now, anyone, even the most self-righteous, egotistical person would pause for a moment to wonder if they are actually worthy of the gift. Perhaps most of us, and I would argue maybe even all of us, would stop short of accepting this amazing, great gift because we know in our heart of hearts, we're really not worthy. We've not earned it. We've not done enough. When you really talk about being worthy, we all know that we are messy, that we have made mistakes, that we haven't been as good as we could, as generous as we could, as kind as we could. None of us actually measure up to the kind of people we want to be and to the kind of people God made us to be. That idea is the starting place of Christian theology. We on our own, are not worthy. And yet, God thinks we are. God did all of this salvation work, Messiah prophecies, Messiah reality, the gift, the sacrifice of Christ, the gift of love in this profound way, because God says, you and I are worthy. This is profound. It is huge. I mean, it's enough to make you cry because we know deep down we aren't good enough. We can't earn God's love and we can't lose God's love. God loves us regardless of anything we have done, regardless of anything that we could or will do, nothing will ever be good enough, nothing will ever be bad enough, that we will lose God's complete and total love, that we will lose God's complete and total commitment to our worth. And that idea of being worthy is so critical for us to understand in our own discipleship. 
And here in this chapter five, we are seeing the idea of worthiness explicit in John's vision. And it's the kind of idea that I think for us is one we have to hold on to all the time because we can beat ourselves up. We can become exhausted. We can become too self-critical. We can, maybe on the flip side, become a little too self-righteous. But I think for most of us, the issue is not being too self-righteous. The issue is being too self-critical. God loves us. God finds us worthy. And I think that's enough. All right, I see a few questions and comments. So <clears throat> let me just check them out. <laughs> what idea, Sally, thanks a lot. What idea from our fall study would you most like for us to bring into this, bring to this year's Christmas experience and to 2021? Um, the idea that we would have <laughs> Christmas experience in 2021. Well, you know what? Maybe I can talk about 2020. Um, well, no, I understand what you're saying. If we're going into 2021, if 2020 has taught us anything, <laughs> it is that we are not as in control as we thought we were. It, we're not as in control as we wish we were. We are, in a very real sense, less strong than we want to be. And I'm talking to this community here, the people who are with us in this Bible study, by and large, if not totally, are people who have been very good about creating a world of security, very good about succeeding and living in the right spot and going to the right schools and having the right social life and wearing the right clothes and driving the right car and on and on and on. And it's not just for show. I think what undergirds those efforts is a very genuine desire for security. And we expend a lot of effort and resources to achieve that security. And what 2020 did that was so painful is it laughed at all of the efforts we make to be secure. No one of us, not a single one of us, was spared the pain of this pandemic. Some of us, way more than others, have suffered most. But every one of us have experienced some kind of heartbreak or pain, discomfort, lack of security. And I would like that all of us learn something from that. I think when this began, and I completely admit to being in this camp, I would have rather just kind of held my breath, put on my face mask, and just power through, right? It's okay, I'll wear a face mask and I'll not do some stuff for a while and that's just fine, right? I, I'm, I'm good, I'm fine. As the months went on, and as we end this year, after having near 10 months, I mean, we're at nine months or so, um, but we are getting close to 10 months of having done this. It will be a way more than 12 months by the end. I mean, I'm thinking it's going to be closer to 18 months by the time we're doing some normal stuff again. For those of us who are trying to power through it, like me, I hope that we can accept that we simply can't control ourselves, our world, our lives, like we thought. And rather than just being down about that, maybe there's a gift in giving up some of that control, a gift in giving up some of the need for strength and security and predictability because God thinks we're worthy anyway. There was one idea... Um, Diane wrote to me this week um, and asked about the idea of God not directing and controlling everything that goes on. And I think that what I'm getting at connects with this idea that I have where God doesn't make decisions for us, but God walks with us every step. We 
often through our efforts and desire for security, actually make decisions and take actions that fundamentally don't trust God. Now, none of us would say it. I don't think any of us would, would just walk into a room and say, I don't trust God. But when you really get down to it, we often think that we have to be in a lot more control than we need to be. And part of what a church community does is invites us into a way of living that gives up some control. And it gives up some control. It doesn't make us careless. It doesn't make us irresponsible. But it does move the needle a little bit so that we are we give up some of the control that we think we have and that we think we need in order to root our faithfulness in God beyond us, beyond just what we see and what we can do, what we have. But instead, our faithfulness goes beyond to the faithfulness that God has in us. We genuinely reciprocate the love and the faith that God has already shown us by showing Him love and faith back. And of course, we do that by showing love and faith to others. You know, when Jesus said, you know, you have loved me, you have cared for me, you have clothed me, you have fed me, and as the people around him said, when did we do this? His response was, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. And then when we don't, we are also not showing love and care back to God. And so I would say, as we move into 2021, it's a great question. If we can allow, and this is hard, if we can allow the experience of 2020 to not just be annoying, not just be frustrating, but to be educational, formative, informing us of new ways to be, then I think we will have gained in a divine way, what God hopes that we would gain from this. You know, God didn't do this, but God can absolutely, through our own faithfulness, make good out of even this pandemic. But we have to be part of that partnership. We have to reciprocate God's desire to make good out of this bad situation. And that's where our faithfulness comes in. So thank you, Sally. That was great. At this point, I'm, a little, I'm five minutes early, <laughs> but I don't think anyone's going to be upset about that. So we'll call it a day. I thank you for being with me this fall semester. I hope that you all have a wonderful Christmas. Make sure you visit our website, stmichael.org Christmas, where you will see all of our Christmas offerings. It begins Sunday night with lessons and carols. Hope you will join us. And there is a special in-person Christmas experience on December 23rd, before Christmas Eve, where you're welcome to come here, walk through the church, receive communion, receive a blessing, and I hope you will join us for that before our wonderful online worship experiences on the 24th and the 25th. stmichael.org slash Christmas will give you all the information you need so you don't miss out on any of the good stuff. May God bless you all, and may you have a Merry Christmas.